Turn with me to Psalm 116. Turn with me to the book of Psalms, and we'll be looking at the 116th Psalm and considering the vows of religion. Psalm 116. Give attention. We'll be reading the entire psalm. Give attention to God's holy word. I love the Lord because he's heard the voice, he's heard my voice and my supplications. Because he's inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. And then I called upon the name of the Lord, O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do love you because you have heard the voice of our supplications. And we come once again, O Lord, to plead and implore you to bless the means of grace that you have appointed. We pray that you would bless this time of preaching, that by the presence of your Spirit we might behold your glory, and in beholding your glory might love you more and more. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. What does it mean to have integrity? Integrity is a very important virtue. In fact, one of the probably sources of your angst today is that nobody in public seems to have integrity. This is why we get frustrated with politicians. They say one thing, and then they do another. And we see the lack of integrity. Likewise, you see it in the church as well. There, there are oftentimes sad cases and examples of leaders in the church who say one thing and do another and lack fundamental integrity. But it's not just leadership in the church. It's, it's the culture at large that is suffering from a lack of integrity. Most people in the culture today are more concerned about how they appear to others 
rather than what they are actually like on the inside. Integrity is uh, a word that simply comes from uh, the idea of two parts being married together, two things being integrated into a whole. So for someone to have integrity, they are a whole person. What they are in private is what they are in public. What they are in their, the recesses of their thoughts is the words that they use when they speak to others. Integrity simply means to not be a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is the opposite of integrity. You know, the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek, and it means to wear a mask. It means to put on a different face. And so the hypocrite is something different publicly than he is in private. Well, in religion, just as in all of the other spheres of our life, in your religion and your walk with Christ, integrity is foundational to living as a Christian. And what we're going to learn in this passage is that the Christian with integrity, the Christian who possesses integrity, has experienced the power of the gospel in private and commits himself to serve the Lord in public. The Christian with integrity has experienced the power of the gospel in private and commits himself to serve the Lord in public. This psalm really has two broad sections. Verses 1 through 11 is the first section, and that's private or in secret. And then verses 12 through 19 is in public. And so we're going to look at the heart of this Christian, this, this believer in the Lord, firstly in private, verses 1 through 11, and then in public, verses 12 through 19. But before we get into the details of these two points, we need a couple of observations about this psalm as a whole. First, one of the things to remember about the psalm is that it's poetry. This is poetic. And so often the way the psalms communicate the truth of our religion is through the medium of experience. The psalms are very emotional, they're very passionate, they're very experiential. And so the way this kind of poetry works, and really all kinds of poetry works, is that it doesn't communicate with logical precision. It communicates with symbols and associations and poetic metaphors to express the truth of religion in the heart of the individual. The second thing to realize about this psalm is that it is probably a psalm of David. Now, I realize it doesn't say a psalm of David. Other psalms will say that. Psalm 23, for instance, a psalm of David. This one doesn't have a title to it. But more than likely, this is a psalm of David based upon what the psalmist is writing about. And it is probably a psalm of David that was in response to the rebellion of Absalom. 
You remember David's son Absalom rebelled against him, and this was part of Nathan's judgment upon his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan told David, the sword will never depart from your house, even though you will be forgiven. And part of the sword never departing from David's house was that his son Absalom rebelled and removed him from the kingdom. Now, John Calvin takes this reading, and the the thing I think that makes this uh, a true interpretation is in verse 11. The psalmist says, I said in my haste, all men are liars. Probably what's going on is that after Absalom rebelled, David has to leave Jerusalem. He's taken off the throne for a short period of time. It was during that time that David despaired of even his own life. Now, the throne was promised to David through the mouth of Samuel the prophet. And it would seem at this experience and this point in David's life, nobody has any integrity. Samuel lied to me. I'm not on the throne anymore. How can this be? And this is probably the context for this psalm. Now, all that being said, it doesn't particularly matter that this is David after the rebellion of Absalom. Because you see, the beauty of poetry, even though poetry comes from a unique personal experience, The poetry of Psalm 116 describes the experience of every true Christian. Just as a side note, I think that's why many psalms in the Psalter don't have titles. They don't have specific references to when this was written. Because the nature of this psalm and the nature of many psalms is that they apply to you where you are right now no matter what you're going through. And here's the first thing that applies to us as Christians who know the Lord. Notice how it starts out. He begins in verses 1 and 2 with an overall title for the entire psalm. This sets the theme for the entire passage. And he says, I love the Lord because he's heard the voice of my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. These two verses really capture the essence of what it means to be a Christian, doesn't it? You see, the the essence of being a Christian is that uh, God has shown his love to you and we love him in response. The, The essence of being a Christian is that I have called upon the Lord in prayer. I have offered up my heart to him, asking him to deliver me, and he answered me. You see, brothers and sisters, I I want you to be reminded, even at this opening verses, what it means to be a Christian is not that you are obedient enough. It's not that you are righteous enough. It's that you trust in the Lord, and that trust is expressed in prayer. That trust is expressed in calling upon the Lord to do in you what you cannot do for yourself. Isn't this what Paul says in Romans chapter 10? All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's describing what it means to be a Christian. Those that call upon the Lord will be saved. Notice also what he says here. He says, I 
love the Lord. Not only is a Christian somebody who calls upon the Lord, and not only is a Christian somebody whom the Lord answers in his prayers, but the Lord is somebody that the Christian loves. Not what he can do for us. Not the things that he gives to us. But the Lord himself. You see, somebody who's a true believer in their heart of hearts, they love the Lord even above themselves. John Calvin famously said that the the regenerate heart, the heart that the Spirit has touched, is a heart that fears to displease its heavenly Father. Because to displease the one that I love would be worse than death itself. This is why people go to the stake. This is why Jesus went to the cross. Because he loved the Lord. Now, this love is described in a deeper experience. And then in verses 3 through 11, now he properly gets to the the real meat of what it means to experience the power of the gospel in private. Notice first off, verses 3 and 4, how the psalmist describes the situation that he was in. The pains of death surrounded me. And the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. This would be a perfect description for David's situation after Absalom had rebelled and kicked him out of the city of Jerusalem. But this is also a description of everyone who has been convicted of their sins. Even if you're not being chased by an army of rebellious subjects like David was, even if you're not in the middle of a battlefield with bullets flying past your head, even if you're living a comfortable, quiet life, but the Spirit of the Lord begins to impress upon you the gravity of your sins and the heinousness of your sins, this experience becomes the experience of every Christian, of everyone whom the Lord has converted in their hearts. They begin to feel that I deserve to die. They begin to feel that God really is sovereign and there is no escape from His hand. There is nowhere that I can flee from His Spirit. There is nothing I can do to prevent the death that is coming and that I deserve. It's almost like being chained, isn't it? Notice what David describes here. He says, The pains of death. In Hebrew, the word pain can also be translated as uh, cords or bands. And so the idea is not merely that I'm fearing the pain of a heart attack. It's that I'm fearing the inevitability of the heart attack. I'm, I'm fearing the fact that death is slowly pulling me down into the grave and there's nothing I can do about it. The cords of death got hold upon me. You know, I I don't know if you've ever owned domesticated animals or perhaps tried to train an animal to be domesticated. But one of the things you find with, say, dogs or cats, for instance, my my mother used to own uh, cats. And when we would get these cats from the shelter, the animal shelter, 
She would put a collar on them. Now, some of these cats were not used to the collar. You know what cats start doing when they, they get the first collar on? They start clawing and, and ripping at it, trying to get it off of their neck because it's binding. It's restricting to them. They're not used to it. That's what the soul is like when these pains of death become real to them. They begin to experience the reality of God's judgment against sin. Not only do we experience the pangs of death, the, the pangs of Sheol that lay hold upon us, David says, I found trouble and sorrow. When, when the conviction of sin is upon us, and the Lord is working in our hearts as we look all around us, there's nothing that we can do. David says, I found trouble and sorrow. When you find something, that implies that you were searching before then. And so the soul that God is working upon, it begins to look for relief somewhere else. Perhaps I need to learn better theology. Perhaps I need to go to church more frequently. Perhaps I need to um, get rid of certain things in my life that are distracting me or perhaps causing me to sin. They, they, they search all around and all they can find is trouble and sorrow. And so it's as if you are already dead when the reality of God's judgment is upon you. It's as if you are already dead. The Lord told Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of the forbidden fruit, for in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. They did not die physically that day, but they did die spiritually. And the heart of a Christian, the heart of one with integrity in the Christian life, has experienced this. Now let me be careful here, because there's a form of Christianity that is very misleading. And that form of Christianity would say something like this. Unless you have had an intensely emotional experience, unless you have experienced the weight of God's wrath in such a way that you can point to the day and the hour when you were converted, unless you've had a conversion experience, you may not really be a Christian. What I'm describing here is not the conversion experience of a lot of uh, broad evangelicalism. What I'm describing here is the effect of the conviction of sin. Now, this can be intense, or this can be uh, not as intense. This can burn as hot as an oven, or it can feel like a match on your thumb. But the experience is the same. Oftentimes, for covenant children that have grown up in the covenant, they don't have intense experiences like this. Perhaps they do. But many times, covenant children that grow up in the covenant are taught from an early age, sin is wrong, and they begin to see this for themselves to a smaller or greater degree. Well, David describes this, and then in verse 4, he gives his response. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Some might ask the question, if God loves his people, why would he put them through these experiences? 
David is uh, described as the man after God's own heart. In fact, David's name in Hebrew means the beloved. David was beloved of the Lord, and yet David went through these experiences. You see, the reason God puts us through these experiences is because he wants us to experience the power of his gospel. God does not merely want us to know the truth of the gospel, but he wants us to see the power of the gospel in our lives. And the way that the power of the gospel is displayed is by feeling yourself to be dead. And your only escape is by calling upon the Lord. The only way to be delivered is by looking to him. And you are, as it were, resurrected from the dead. This is one of the second things we need to realize about the heart of the Christian. The heart of the Christian believes in the supernatural power of Jehovah. Notice how it's described here. The pains of death got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. I was going down to the grave, and then I called upon the Lord to deliver my soul. And we're going to learn later on, God did deliver his soul. This is yet another description of God's resurrection power in the life of his people. There are several other places where this is described. Romans chapter 6 is probably the most famous one, where Paul says, if you have been baptized into Christ, you have been baptized into his death. And if Christ has been raised, you have also been raised with him in newness of life. The benediction that I've been using from the book of Hebrews describes the God of all peace, uh, uh, the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, bless you and keep you in Hebrews chapter 13. You see this resurrection idea all throughout the scriptures, and you find it here once again. David has brought to the point where he sees himself as a dead man, and his only choice is to call upon the Lord. Brothers and sisters, especially covenant children, I I want you to hear this message very clearly. The faith of the Christian is not outward conformity to God's commandments in your own strength. The faith of a Christian, the heart of those who believe in Christ, are those who trust in the supernatural power of God to save them, to transform them, to deliver them from their sins, to cause them to grow in holiness, Romans chapter 6. And then ultimately, at the end of our lives, to bring us out of the grave once again. You know, I've been reading some OPC history lately. It's a very good book. You should, if you can find it, it's not in print anymore, but if you can find it, I highly recommend it. It's called The Presbyterian Conflict. Uh, and it tells the story of, of uh, J. Gresham Machen and his fights with liberalism in the 1930s. One of the big themes in Machen's writings and in his contest was that He said liberalism was a false religion because it denied the supernatural. It denied the virgin birth. It denied the resurrection. It denied the miracles. And the liberals of his day would deny all those things. And Machen would say, on the other hand, no, Christianity is a supernatural religion. 
And I want to add one more thing to what Machen would say. He would agree with this, and he probably said it. I'm just not recalling where he said it. But understand, brothers and sisters, if, if God does not intervene in your life, if God, by His supernatural power, does not deliver you from the dead, just as He rose Christ from the dead, you have no hope. There is no hope without the power of God. There is no salvation without the supernatural power delivering you from spiritual death, just as David recounts here. There is no hope. Christianity is more than a doctrine. It's not less than a doctrine. There are truths that you have to confess, but it is more than a doctrine in the display of God's power. And so David prays, O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. And then David begins to, he has experienced some of God's power. In verse 5, he begins to talk about the attributes of God that he's experienced. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now notice that David is still in private. He's still meditating upon God's graciousness and goodness in his own heart. Notice first off that in the midst of his prayers, in asking the Lord to deliver him, the Lord answers him, and now David is more fully persuaded. He is more fully convinced that God is gracious, that God is righteous, and that God is merciful, that he preserves the simple. He says, I was brought low and he saved me. And then he applies this doctrine to himself. Notice he's speaking to himself. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Here's another aspect of the Christian heart in private. The heart of the Christian is governed, is bridled and guided by the truth of the gospel. The heart of the Christian is not guided by its own emotions. It's not guided by its own desires. It's guided and governed by the truths of God's Word that are manifested in the Gospel even as David exemplifies it here. Notice he experienced that God is gracious and merciful, that God preserves the simple, that God has heard me and saved me when I was brought low, and then he tells himself, settle down. Return to your rest, O my soul. God has dealt bountifully with you. Two things here that are very important for your private life. One is what the Puritans would speak a lot about when they talked about meditation. Meditation is a lost art in, in, many, in many places, especially Christian meditation. Now, I'm not talking about what the Buddhists do. 
and they sit and try to empty their mind of all content so that they can become one with the universe and cease to exist. That's their goal. Meditation in a Christian sense is exactly what David is doing here. He is reflecting on God's attributes. He's reflecting on the truth of his word, and then he applies that truth to himself. See, meditation helps us to get out of our circumstances. It helps us to rise above what we're currently experiencing and to feed upon the truth of God's word. And then in meditating and learning more of God's truth, we then apply it to ourselves. The second thing, meditation is a good practice you should take up. But the second thing to realize is that you need to be active in your spiritual life. You need to be active in your private devotions and meditations. When I say active in your spiritual life, I'm not talking about sharing the gospel more. I'm not talking about reading more pages of the Bible. I'm not talking about devoting more time to prayer, though those things are good in themselves. What I am talking about is in your heart and in your meditations, taking hold of God's truth and then actively applying it to yourself. One of the great dangers that we face today, and one of the great dangers that the young men we just put under vows faces today, is that the culture we live in makes us passive. It makes us passive recipients. And so we just want to just receive whatever is presented to me, and we just respond passively to whatever's put into our hearts and minds through the world around us. But what we see here in this example of David is that he's active. His soul is stirred up. He's an emotional mess right now. But he lays hold of God's truth and says, No soul, return to your rest. God has been bountiful with you. God has dealt graciously with you. God is good. You can take a seat, soul, and relax in the promises of his covenant. And so we need to be active in our private life as Christians, especially in our meditations. David goes on to speak about um, more of what the Lord did for him, but he, he concludes, especially in verses 10 and 11, verses 8 and 9, he recounts more of God's benefits. He says, you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Just notice the, the connection between the sense, the pain of death that David was delivered from, the, the consequences of his sins, God delivered him from that. And in verse 9, that is the assurance that David will be raised from the dead. See, he's giving expression to the final resurrection. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The land of the living is the new heavens and the new earth. And David is assured that he will be delivered from the physical grave because God has taken him out of the spiritual grave. And now he has assurance that the resurrection is true. Brothers and sisters, just to make an application here for the good of your souls. Growth 
in grace is the greatest way to be assured of the truth of the gospel. Growth in your walk with the Lord now is the way to build assurance for the future. That's what David is expressing here by experiencing the power of the gospel. Well, David goes on and then he comes to verses 10 and 11. seems like an odd verse in the flow of this psalm. But what I, what I think David is doing here is he's, he's giving expression to how emotionally distraught he was. Look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Now I think there's two things going on here. The first, in verse 10, David is giving expression to how afraid he really was. He says, I believed. I uh, understood what was going on. And I trusted in the promises of the gospel. I trusted in God's goodness. And so I simply said to him, I am greatly afflicted. Let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, because one, one of the reasons we become hypocrites is we don't want to really admit how bad things are to the Lord. We, we don't really want to confess to Him, I really have no idea what I'm doing. I, I really am lo- lost like a ball in high weeds. And I don't know how to get out of this. But David says, I confess that. I am greatly afflicted. But he also sinned. Look at what he says. I said in my haste, all men are liars. You see, David, in this episode, if, if the Absalom rebellion is what's actually going on here, he feels betrayed. He feels like all of his allies have abandoned him. And in his haste, he says, everyone's a liar. Nobody can be trusted. I'm done with this kingdom, this world, whatever. And I think David's confessing a sin here. He says, in my haste, I said this. He's responding emotionally to his situation. And so he confesses his sins. But the Lord has delivered him from these sins in private. He's experienced the power of the gospel in his own heart. Let me just conclude this first point by saying simply this. What you need in your life right now, and what the churches need right now, and what our society needs right now, is examples of the power of the gospel. What what needs to happen in our lives and in the life of America is not more Uh, explanations about why the gospel is true, but demonstrations in the life of his people about the power of the gospel and sinners being transformed as David was transformed in the first part of this psalm. But notice, it starts in private. These first 11 verses are all David in the prayer closet. This is all David wrestling with his own heart in private. None of this is public yet. And David has experienced this. You and I also need to experience this in our private lives. 
Well, this private experience of David then transitions into the public experience of David. You see, David privately had experienced the truth of the gospel. He'd felt the power of the gospel, and that leads him to publicly serve the Lord among men. He begins in verse 12 by asking this question, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? Now, verse 12 is a very important verse because it's the transition from the first part to the second part, but also because of the word that's used here that we translate as render. This word can also mean to return, to pay back, to bring back. This is the Hebrew word that's most often uh, translated or most often used to describe repentance. This is David giving expression to his repentance after having been delivered. You could translate it this way. What shall I return to the Lord? What shall I bring back to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? Now, just a brief comment on repentance. I know in some circles, repentance is a, is a scary word. <laughs> when we think about repentance, we often think about judgment of sin, my own sense of guilt, and we tend to stay there. Repentance has a positive and hopeful side to it as well. You see, repentance is not just feeling sorry for your sins. It's not even committing to forsake those sins, but it is also committing to return to the Lord. You see, repentance is an about face. Sin is over here, the Lord is over there. When I repent, I turn away from sin and I turn towards the Lord. This is the positive side of repentance. This is the hopeful side of repentance because as our confession teaches, repentance is an evangelical grace. Repentance is a gospel grace. Repentance is something that's made available to us through the power of the gospel. So David now gives expression to his repentance. How can I return to the Lord for all of his benefits to me. Well, he tells us three things. I will take the cup, I will call upon the name, and I will pay my vows. The first thing that David notes here is what we're about to engage in with the Lord's Supper. He says that I will take the cup of salvation. Now remember what I said earlier, this is a poem. And poems often use symbols and representative images to describe entire ideas. In the Old Testament system, there were a series of drink offerings that went along with the sacrifices. Exodus 29 and other passages in Leviticus speak about you bring the lamb, you bring the grain, and then you bring half a bottle of wine for the drink offering. The drink offering was often sometimes poured upon the sacrifice, but in other types of offerings, the drink offering was consumed by the one who worshipped. Now, whenever you drink something, especially with somebody else, it usually signifies union and friendship. Businessmen, after they cut a deal, will often go out 
and have a drink to celebrate the deal. They drink one together. When friends and relatives get together, they'll often sit down and have a meal and enjoy a beverage together. In the mornings, my wife and I like to sit in front of our garden and drink coffee in the morning together, but we have a drink together that symbolizes our union. Likewise, in the sacrifices of God, when David says, I'm going to take the cup of salvation, I am, uh, he, he's expressing his allegiance to the Lord. I'm going to drink the cup that symbolizes my union with God. He's provided this. I'm going to drink it. We are united. This cup of salvation translates beautifully into what Paul the Apostle says about the Lord's Supper. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Paul, speaking about the Lord's Supper, he says, uh, starting in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Paul takes this idea of the the cup of salvation, the cup of blessing, and says that the cup of the communion of the blood of Christ is this cup of blessing. It is the cup of salvation. And Paul says, "Don't don't, don't go to idols, flee from idolatry. You have partaken of the cup of salvation. You have been united to Christ by faith through the sacrament. Well, David says, I'm going to take up that cup of salvation. And I'm going to be united to Jehovah. Publicly, I'm going to be committed to Him. Let me just remind you, uh, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, a couple of things about the Lord's Supper. In the New Testament, the, the, the Lord's Supper is often called a mystery. Paul uses that word in Ephesians chapter 5, and that word is used in other places in Paul's writings. The the Lord's Supper is a mystery in that, through the physical element, we mystically partake of the power of Christ. It's a mystery how this works. By faith, through the bread and the wine, you eat the body and drink the blood of the Lord Jesus. Mystically, spiritually, not carnally, but really in a powerful sense. The Lord's Supper is a mystery in that sense. One of the other ways that we describe the Lord's Supper is our more common way of speaking about it when we say that it is a sacrament. The word sacrament comes from the Roman military, and when soldiers were enrolled in the Roman military, they would be given a sacramentum. A sacramentum was an oath of allegiance that bound that soldier to the commander's service. In the Western church, as as time went on, they began to speak of the Lord's Supper as a sacramentum of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we call it a sacrament. Now, the reason I'm going through this is because I want you to realize that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, when you take the cup of salvation, you are not only participating in a mystery, you are also giving an oath of loyalty. You are giving the same kind of oath that David gives in this psalm. I am the Lord's and he is mine 
and it's symbolized through the sacrament. But not only that, he says, I will take the cup of salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. Again, David is still committed to the heart of Christianity. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. When I talk about taking vows or taking an oath of loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, the assumption of the gospel is that you can't fulfill that oath. You cannot keep the vows that you're under. That's the assumption of the gospel. The solution is the power of Christ. And the way you lay hold of that solution is by calling upon the name of the Lord. That's why David moves right into this. I'm going to take the oath of loyalty and call upon the Lord to do what I cannot do for myself. St. Augustine said it famously, Lord, grant what you will, uh, command what you will, and grant what you command. That's what David's saying here. And then finally he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of his people. Having taken the oath of loyalty, having called upon the name of the Lord, David is now ready to fulfill his vows in the presence of all of his people. I mentioned earlier when we put the young men under vows that you cannot vow anything that the Lord has not promised to give you grace to perform. Religious vows are of this nature. They are public confessions or assertions that we believe the Lord's truth and we will be committed to the Lord's service. Now, vows are very dangerous things. Vows are very powerful things. And because they are powerful, they are dangerous. On the one hand, for a Christian like David in Psalm 116, a Christian with integrity, a Christian whose heart has been transformed by the power of the gospel, vows are excellent guides for the Christian life. Vows keep us on the rails when we feel ourselves wandering. Vows can remind us and goad our hearts to continue in obedience. That's how vows are useful to us. But for the one that does not have a heart transformed by the gospel, for one that has not experienced the power of the gospel in their own heart as David had experienced it, vows become a snare increasing damnation upon you. Because the Lord will hold you to the vows that you make. The Lord will expect you to pay the vows that you take. And He will judge everyone who does not keep the vows that they've made. And so what does this mean for us? Well, we need to take vows seriously. But remember what I said. Taking vows seriously means calling upon the Lord. It means trusting in His power, not in our own power. This is an expression of David's repentance. God has delivered him in private, and now in public, he's going to be committed to the Lord. There's more here, but for the sake of time, I won't uh, spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to point out to you, verses 17 and 18, David repeats these same ideas. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. One of the ways to read Hebrew poetry is through parallels. 17 and 18 are parallel to 13 and 14. 14 and 18 both speak about paying vows. You move up one step, and it says that he will call upon the name of the Lord in 13 and 17. And then at the beginning of 17 and the beginning of 13, it says, I will take the cup of salvation. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The cup and the sacrifice are parallel ideas. This is how we know it's a drink offering associated with the sacrificial system. But this is also how we know the final thing about the Christian life. Because God is the one who does everything for our salvation. Because it is the power of God in the resurrection that saves us, there is nothing left for us to do except be thankful. Except to give thanks to the Lord. To show Him our gratitude through allegiance to Him in partaking of the sacraments in our dependence upon Him in private, calling upon the name of the Lord, and in faithfully fulfilling our vows by the power of Christ in public with our brothers and sisters, even as David says, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your grace that the word teaches us about. And we thank you for the power of your grace and word which is evident in our lives as you have delivered us from our sins and will one day deliver us from the grave. We pray, O Lord, that you would seal these things up in our hearts that we might live with integrity before you privately depending upon you and publicly fulfilling our vows in the midst of all your people. And to that end, we ask that you would seal us with the sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen.